I want to share a little story with you to highlight this passage that we're going to be talking about. Years ago, uh, working myself through college, I was walking up the path with my co uh, cottage coordinator, uh, Keith, and he was listing through the names and the temperaments of the young men that I'd be working with in the next few years, Javier, Raymond, Q. It was when he got to Ernie is when the uh, chair came crashing through the window and landed in the lawn in front of us, followed by a lamp followed by a loud and long and creative string of cuss words. Immediately, security had run right past us, and they ran right into the cottage to put down the, the lockdown protocols. It's at that moment that Keith turned and looked at me, and big smile on his face, gave me my keys, and said, welcome to Cottage 4A. These are your boys. I spent three years working in the McKinley Home for Boys, and we were like one big, happy, institutionalized family together. I, on more than one occasion, felt like these boys' father breaking up the umpteenth fight of the week. And it wasn't the kind of fight where furniture went through the windows, although that did happen more than that one occasion. It was the kind of verbal combat that all of us get so skilled at uh, when someone that's close to us gets on our last nerves. You know the experience. But these kids, these young boys, they were good. I mean, they, they were rhetorical gladiators. They could strike with such precision and stinging accuracy with their words. It was a marvel to watch. I, the, it was more like a depraved poetry than an argument a lot of times with these boys. And, and our job, me being one of the cottage staff, was to try and help these young men live and see a better way. But if you've ever been in a situation where there's just a lot of conflict going on, you've had the experience that sometimes you actually aren't making an improvement in the situation, you're actually adding fuel to the fire. You ever had that experience? As I would get into the melee to try and break it up, I would take up my verbal weapons to beat down their verbal weapons. And we'd go back and forth. And, and many of our cottage staff meetings surrounded the conversation, of, of the topic of what's it feel like to live and work in an environment, in a house that was just riddled with conflict. Do you um, relate? Do you have conflict in your life? Is there people that you otherwise love but can experience extreme frustration with? Is somebody that just knows how to push that one button to get at you? There's somebody in your life that just their presence kind of puts you in that mood? About this summer, do you have conflict this summer in your household, your family? What about this past August? What about last week? Yesterday? How about this morning? You have some conflict, right? Conflict is everywhere. Maybe you're the kind of person who feels like, look, my entire life is conflict. It's only punctuated by moments of relative peace. You know, the Bible teaches us that conflict is one of the principal effects of the fall from Genesis 3. And it doesn't take much to get some going, does it? It could just be a really extra busy time in the bathroom as all of you are trying to rush and prepare for the day. It could be a small fender bender as you're driving to the office. It could be a real slow express line as you're trying to get your Sumatra decaf grande at Starbucks, right? That gets us, uh, right? First world problems, you know what I'm saying? But maybe you have conflict that's of a more profound type. Tension fills your marriage. The person that you thought was going to be your lifelong best friend is the most isolated and distant person you know. 
Or maybe you have some broken relationships with some friends. The phone calls get less and less frequent and more and more awkward. Or maybe it's that guy that you work with who seems to have it in his mind to oppose every idea you bring up at the board meeting and shoot you down. Or maybe it's your neighbor who seems to forget that he actually lives or she actually lives in an apartment or neighborhood that include other people. Conflict is all around us from the petty disagreements to all-out war, and we're surrounded by it, and we're not immune from it. But you know, the Bible teaches that conflict is also a very illuminating window into the human heart. Our passage this morning is one of many that the Bible uses and teaches us how to understand our conflict, our anger, and these things, but more importantly, how to resolve them. We're going to be looking at James chapter 4 and verses uh, 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, please turn to that passage. James uses conflict to give us significant insight into the heart's daily struggles. And since conflict is everywhere as Christians, we need to know how to understand it, its purpose, and how we can use it for the glory of God and our own good. As a matter of fact, this morning is really, this sermon is to encourage you, entice you to join our uh, Bible study starting next week on resolving everyday conflict. And James sets us up beautifully. Let me pray and dive into the passage, and uh, we'll get into God's Word. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we could see the practicality of Scripture, that this thing that surrounds our lives, this conflict, the anger, all that goes with it, is not something you're unfamiliar with, and you know exactly why we go the way we do, and you give us the solution. We thank you for your Word that's so practical. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear its truth and a willing heart to obey, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This is what James writes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In our text this morning, James poses a question and an answer. 
He provides evidence that backs up his answer, and then he talks about what the problem is and how we get its solution. So that's how we're going to look at it today. Uh, Let's start where James starts, and he starts with a question. The very first half of verse 1, look what James writes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You know, if you're like uh, most people, when they get angry, um, we tend to explain our anger as something that's outside of us, somewhat something outside of us, or someone outside of us is to blame, right? He drives me nuts. This computer gets me so mad. I can't stand those meetings. The kids know how to tick me off, right? We're always looking for the explanation of our anger and things outside of us. But according to James... He says, we will never understand our anger that way. Instead of looking outside for the reasons of our anger, James counsels these people to do the exact opposite, to look within. You see, this is a fundamental biblical principle. The only way to really understand our anger is to examine our own hearts. Asher, do me a favor. There's a, give me that water bottle. Just throw it to me. Let me just illustrate my point with this. It's a water bottle here, right? It's another reason no one's going to sit in the front row. <laughs> Let me ask you a question that may seem very simple. Why is there water on the floor? <laughs> because you did it with this accusatory term. <laughs> yes but that's making a huge assumption about something. What did I do? Shook the bottle, right? Is that why there's water on the floor? Yeah, brainless, that's why there's water on the floor. Well, I could have punched the bottle, water's on the floor. I could have said, oh, come on out. It's nice out here, come on out. And water's on the floor. Cleanup crew is getting really mad right now. (laughs) And a bunch of people. Why is there water on the floor? Did you hear that? Why is there water on the floor, Ken? Because there's water in the bottle. Yep. I could punch it. I could shake it. I could turn it upside down. If there's no water in the bottle, there would be no water on the floor. This is a fundamental biblical principle that is so obvious we often miss it. Jesus said, look at this verse, it's on the screens behind me. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus said, Out of the good treasure of a good heart, he produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 4.23 says something very similar to this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, Why? For from it flow the springs of life. If you stop to think about it, people or situations don't force us to be angry, do they? For one thing, the same relationships and situations elicit very different responses from very different people. So for example, the things that I say and do would drive half the women in this church nuts if they were married to me. The other half would be completely embarrassed by me. But those very same things my wife Lori laughs at and endears me to her. Now, don't go ask her what those things are at the picnic. We don't want want gossip going on here. But the point I'm getting at is the very things for you that are amusing and maybe endearing 
can be the very things that are upsetting or annoying to someone else. Now, it's true that there are people and relationships and situations that we all generally dread, but there is enough variation in in the how, in the when, and the where, and the whys between all those that tell us that there's something else going on, and the Bible says that is the heart. See, just in this first verse, James makes a strong connection between our desires and our conflict between the things that we want and the things that make us angry. This is a, what, what, what James would call the desire-conflict connection. This connection is so profound, this desire-conflict connection, that it's the, the, the basis, the foundation on all the practical insights we're going to see in James chapter 4. So the question James has is, what causes fights? What causes quarrels amongst you? Why are you going at each other? And here's his answer. It's actually just the second half of verse 1. Is it not this, James asks, that your passions are at war within you? You see, James encourages us to examine our desires inside because it's the only way to understand the anger that comes out. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you'll see the word passions there that I'm saying is the word desire. I'm following the the NIV translation at that point because the word passion that the translators are trying to get at, that this is a very strong desire that's there. Now, I just want uh, so that we understand James, James, two, two qualifiers. Number one, the Bible does not teach, nor am I saying that desires are wrong, Desires are a good thing. God is a God of desire. God is a God of purpose. And when we have purpose and desire, that is one way we mirror Him. The second qualifier is notice that James does not say evil desires. Of course, evil desires are often a source of conflict, but James is trying to get at something much more fundamental. He writes, is it not this, that your desires... Your passions are at war within you. You see, beneath the war and conflicts between people, there is a more fundamental war that is raging that never makes the headlines. James calls it here in verse 1, he calls it a a within-you war. See that little phrase, your passions at war within you. James is giving us a very insightful look into the way the heart operates. He says it's a a fount of competing desires. That there's these competing desires that are at war within you that then erupt war without you. So, for example, you are coming home from a long day at the office and you are looking forward to seeing your family again. Or you are looking forward to going to the gym to work off some steam because after all, that guy at the office is always oppressing you and always against you. Or you are driving home and it's been a hard day at class and and you're looking forward because uh, Netflix has got the new season of Sherlock on and you want to binge watch that and you're you're looking for that time. But you also realize that you've got a husband or a wife and kids you want to minister to, mom and dad have questions for you. So there's this mix of competing desires. The desire that wins in that moment will shape your behavior the moment you walk through that front door. The desire that wins in that moment will shape your behavior the moment you walk through the front door. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, 
I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit, basically he says, whatever rules the heart controls the behavior. Whatever rules your heart will control your behavior. So before there's even a battle with this other person you're dealing with, there's a battle of competing desires going on in your own heart. That's what James says. But before that battle in your own heart between competing desires is won, there's another more fundamental battle that's taking place. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's look back at the text, James, and evidences. Um, uh, verses 2 and 3, James gives the evidence. You desire and you do not have, so what are you going to do? You murder, he says. You covet and cannot attain, so what are you going to do? You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Think about this. If my heart is ruled by a certain desire, there is only one of two ways I can respond to you, right? If there is a desire that controls me, only one of two ways is going to control the, determine how I respond to you. If you are helping me fulfill and get that desire, well, we're going to get along great. We're going to have a good relationship. I'm going to enjoy that. But if you are actually opposing me or standing in the way of my desire, I'm not going to experience anything but frustration and discouragement in our interactions with one another. Does that make sense? So, so my problem... Our problem is not with people or the situations we're in necessarily. The problem is that a legitimate desire, legitimate desire, a, a, a normal, good desire that you might want to have, a good one, has taken illegitimate control of your heart and is now demanding that you satisfy it. It's an illegitimate desire because the power and authority that my desire now rules over my heart is only the power and authority that God that belongs rightly to the Lord. So, is it wrong to desire relaxation at the end of a long day? No, it's not. But it is wrong to be so ruled by that desire that I'm annoyed by anybody who gets in my way of that. Is it wrong to desire the acceptance of my coworkers or classmates? No, not at all. It is wrong to be so ruled by that desire that I'll compromise and not do what's right. See, a legitimate desire can go in many different directions. So the question James asks is, why do you have quarrels? Why do you fight? And the answer he gives is because there are other desires ruling my heart more than God's desires rule me. So, let me illustrate that. In, 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 that's the macro idea. Let me illustrate that, the way this happens all the time in our lives in ways we don't even recognize, and it's important to be able to recognize it to see this dynamic at work. Early on in my marriage with Lori, years and years ago, uh, my wife, before we got married, worked for a, law, for a couple of law firms and did well for herself, uh, such that one of her hobbies was collecting European sports cars, right? Um, yeah. I collected receipts from AutoZone because I had a dumpy Japanese car falling apart. Well, early on in our marriage, I had to get a part to fix my truck again. And there I was in the uh, auto parts aisle. I forget if it was AutoZone or, or Walmart. But as I walked into the aisle with my wife, who had come off work, she was dressed nicely, kind of business casual, you know. And we walked into an aisle with clearly some gearheads in the aisle grabbing parts or doing whatever they need to as they were working. And there I was, squatting down at the aisle, trying to figure out which part I need. 
And as I reached out to grab the part, I hear my new bride say, Rick, what are you doing? That's not the right part. And in a moment, I stopped. You see, what was going on here is I desired to look like I know what I'm doing in front of all these guys who are looking at my wife in her business casual attire, telling her husband he's got the wrong part, <laughs> tool, or whatever it was. All of this in a flash. And guess what I chose to do? Guess which desire, the desire to look competent and look like I'm a man like these guys, or the desire to be humble and take correction and grow in wisdom from my wife? <laughs> so all this is like in a fraction of a second, and I keep yanking it off the, to the hanger. <laughs> and my wife says, Rick, that's the wrong one, as she grabs the appropriate tool and slides it off. The point I'm getting at is this huge principle that applies to the major conflicts of our lives, plays itself out thousands of times over in instances of a second. And the desire that rules my heart will shape my behavior. Now, obviously, we had some things to work through that situation. Like I said, don't ever, ever, ever do that again. <laughs> but I had to communicate that it's important for me to look competent in front of men. Is that illegitimate? I hope not. But it was illegitimate because it was more important to me to look like I was one of the boys than to take correction and do what was right, and take the right tool, not waste the money. But do you see how this principle, its huge principle plays out in every moment of our lives? So some of you may be saying, okay, great, that's, that's the question, this is why you fight. You're fighting because you have all these competing desires in you. What's the big deal with having those desires like that? Here's the problem. James tells us in verse 4, he says this. He makes an accusation, rather, he says, you adulterous people! Now this is one of those kinds of moments you say, James, what, what are you... How does this compute? You're just talking about desires and fighting, and now you're bringing in adultery. What's going on? You see, what James is talking about is spiritual adultery. James is talking about spiritual adultery. Now here, if adultery is the sin of giving someone the love I have promised to another, then I am a spiritual adulterator whenever I give the rule of my heart to someone or something other than God. Does that make sense? That's why James, he's seeing this clearly. The reason there is fighting, the reason that there's these quarrels within you is you've let other desires rule you, and the poison that's a problem is that's spiritual adultery. Only God and God alone ought to rule your life, and you've given it over to something else. Here's the key principle of James right here in verse 4. Human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. Human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. Now, in, in talking about this, this great exchange of worship, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, 25, speaking of humanity's uh, bent to replace and worship little gods, little idols, rather than the one true and living God who deserves worship. Listen to what he says in Romans 1, 25. Because they, humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and here it comes, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, whoever is blessed, amen. 
Now, I, I just want to, I'm making a huge assumption. I'm making the assumption that everyone understands the way I'm using the word worship. Many people, particularly if you're not used to going to a church, you may be confused. What are you talking about worship? This, this, what, isn't this what we're doing? This is worship? And you know that what we do corporately together that we call worship is the accumulation of what we have been doing individually all week long. It's just much more deliberate and takes a different form. This is why we call it corporate worship. And it's just the manifestation of what our lives were doing all week long anyway, even down to the giving of our tithes. Did you realize that? that? Because in my life, I ought to recognize that all material things I have are not my own, but the Lord's. And when I come here and gather with you all, I'm just making an expression of that, being very deliberate about what I'm already doing with my life. And so worship is not just this hour and a half, or in today's case, maybe three-hour thing. Worship is the thing by which my life revolves, the thing that receives the allegiance of my heart, the thing that determines the priorities and values of the way I live. That's worship. And whether or not you call it that, whether or not you are a Christian, everybody does it. Right? I have an Instagram on my phone, and I have the REI and Mountain Hardware, and they've always posted these pictures, and I'm thinking, oh, these people are worshiping. And I don't mean that crit- critically. They've revolved their lives around the art of being out in the mountains. They've made financial investments. It's a priority. It's something they love. They sing its praise. They're doing what I do. And so that's what Paul's talking about. We've exchanged worship for the true and living God for these created things. So see, our problem is not difficult situations and sinful people. My problem is I give the love that belongs to God alone to someone or something else. It's my own spiritual adultery that causes me to be angry with you. You stand in the way of what I want, and I lash out at you, right? Isn't that what's going on on the 405 freeway when somebody cuts you off? Hey, this was my lane. Did you just see that? He went in my lane. You don't come in my lane. As a matter of fact, all you people are on my freeway right now. That's why we get mad, because in my world, right, it should be traffic-free 405. When I get on the armor, it should be like the Red Sea. You all just kind of go aside, and I go. That's what's going on. That's why we get mad when people get in our lane, because we believe we have the right, because in our minds, we are kind of Lord, and you should not do that. When I come home, I want self-parenting kids. You, don't, you shouldn't need me to have to help you with your homework. You shouldn't need me to arbitrate a disagreement. You should just be in, in awe of how wise your dad is and be happy you live with him. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. And what happens is when I don't get what I want, because I don't see these moments as moments of ministry or moments to grow in patience and thinking of other people, and what happens is I didn't get what I want, and now I'm angry and I lash out. This battle happens all the time within us. We tend to worship and serve the Creator rather than, excuse me, we worship the creation rather than the Creator. It's hard to see because they're often intangibles like respect, admiration, uh, esteem, all those things. And James says if you want to understand your anger, you have to look within your own heart. So the question is, What idols have taken your worship away from God? They self-fulfillment, career goals, your desire for leisure, your pursuit of amusements, your lust for things, your desire for new and exciting relationships. Have those filled your heart? James says it's spiritual adultery. 
That's the problem. That's why it's a problem. But James gives us a solution, verses 5 through 10, and it's one of the most castigating portions of Scripture. I'm not going to unpack the whole thing. I just want to give you the kernel of what he's getting at. Verse 5 and 6, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James saying, hey, but don't be discouraged. In this battle for your heart, you are not battling alone. God battles for you. God is jealous and will not tolerate our love and our lives being given to other lesser gods. He will confront our self-absorbed, egocentric living. He wants to have the final victory, not because he's opposed to us, but because he knows what is best for us, and he wants us not to be consumed by our own selfishness, but he wants us to be set free by a selflessness. So what's James's solution? We just kind of read it here. Uh, you would think that James might say, here's the, the thing you need to do. You go to the other person and you confess your wrongs. Yeah, that's true, but notice where James starts. James doesn't start with a horizontal perspective. His turnaround for this problem is first vertical, then horizontal. James is writing here in verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8 is a plea to deal with the idolatry that's within our hearts. If human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery, then change comes first by bowing before God in humble repentance. You see, it's not just you need to work on some communication skills, uh, uh, count to 10 and breathe, or work the little stress ball kind of thing. I mean, those are important after you've dealt with the primary issue that you are a spiritual adulterer and something else has captivated your heart. If you just do those things, it's like moving chairs around the Titanic. It'll look nicer, but you're still all going to go under, under the water. But James says, deal with the first thing. Your conflict is first and foremost an issue of worship and spiritual adultery. Deal with that and then deal with one another. In other words, if the cause of conflict is false worship, the solution for it is true worship. So so we come to the realization that this, this conflict that fills our lives is a window into the worship that fills our hearts. That's what James is getting at here. So let me conclude with this. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what are you worshiping? Now, I know, right? The the right answer we're all going to say is Jesus, God, the Trinity. That's true. But do you really want to know what it is you worship? Do you really want to know, functionally speaking, what it is that you worship? If you do, then take a step back. The next time you encounter conflict, and you trace back your anger and your frustration back into your heart and to the desires that are there, and you'll see what the object of your worship really is in your life. Chances are what's happened when you've had this conflict and anger raises up again. The reason you got angry is because in your heart, there's this little idol that got knocked over, and your anger is the defense mechanism to protect it. But when when the living God is there, He doesn't need any protection. 
He is more than capable of taking care of himself. And next week, uh, as we begin a study of 1 Samuel, it's a book all about idols of the heart. We're going to see that dynamic play itself out over and over again. But when Christ and his truth and his promises are at the center of our lives, nothing knocks him down. See, one of the main reasons I think God allows conflict in our lives is because it's a wonderful way to reveal what still rules our hearts. And James says we need to deal with it. But before we can deal with it, we need to realize what the true problem is and humbly repent and worship the true and living God and not these desires, these good desires that God gives us. And that actually, what we just covered in this last 40 minutes, is what our eight-week study about resolving everyday conflict is all about based on James chapter 4. So if any of that's interesting to you, I just encourage you to be a part of it. Let's pray.